You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from a fanfiction story titled The Schwarzschild Solution from a fanfiction series called The Wine Dark Sky by today's guest fanfiction writer, Doll and Dapple. Essek held the collar-like device in his hands, still unbelieving. You designed this? Yeah. Not long after our first meeting, actually. I completed the final prototype around the time you were arrested, incidentally. Caleb took the second device and fixed it around his own neck. Look, you just activate the shield here. A golden-orange shimmer coated Caleb's entire body, like a semi-transparent film barely a half-inch above his skin. The tanks and tether cables strapped to their backs inside reinforced backpack-like cases were still unwieldy, but Widogast's suit of amber allowed some degree of movement. Impressive, murmured Essek, activating his own collar. They stood in the cramped antechamber, on the other side of the small window inside the main deck. Veth and Jesper waved and grinned mutely. Behind them, Ford had his hand on a large red button. Once Caleb was certain that Essex's shield was fully functional, he signaled to Ford through the window. Ford nodded and pressed the button. First, gravity loosened its hold on them. Then the doors opened slowly, silently into the expanse. Next to him, Essex's eyes were wide. This was why Caleb had spent so much time on the suit. He could see Essex's face unobstructed as he drifted out into the stars, weightless. Essex used the edge of the doorway to propel himself outside the hall of the ship. Caleb followed. They had flown to one of Caleb's favorite spots for this event. The Lucidian Nebula blossomed around them in spectacular shades of green and blue, spotted with stars like diamonds, the corpse of a supergiant. Unfathomable wings of gas and cosmic debris stretched in every direction against the velvet black vacuum. The nearest inhabited planet was almost a light year away. They had all of this to themselves. Essex's hair was drifting around his head as if he were underwater. Slowly, kept a safe proximity to the ship by the tether, he began to spin in place like a compass needle. Caleb drifted a little closer. Now he could see that Essex was laughing. True, tears-in-his-eyes laughter. Laughter Essex couldn't hold back as he clutched his belly and slowly turned on a meaningless axis in space. Caleb mourned, not being able to hear his laughter for only a moment, before Essex fumbled with his pack and his voice crackled into Caleb's earpiece. Come closer! Caleb needed no further prompt to adjust the miniature jet on his pack and fly towards Essex. They collided, as they always did, into each other's arms and for the first time, it was no accident. They drifted hand in hand, with the ship behind them. Thank you, said Essex's voice in his ear. For what? Essex smiled at him before turning towards the sky above, below, and around them. This is where I'm supposed to be. To the north, south, east, and west four quarters of the world, greetings from the wild arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest fanfiction writer today is Doll and Dapple. She has been a member of AO3 since 2020, and she currently has 15 fanfiction stories currently posted for the Critical Role fandom. Doll and Dapple likes crochet, Silver Age sci-fi novels, and bad fantasy thriller movies from the 2000s. She also recently started playing D&D. Hell yeah! Doll and Dapple, welcome to the Fanfic Maverick. How are you doing today? I'm great. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to ask you, when you say bad fantasy thriller movies from the 2000s, what do you think would be your favorite bad fantasy thriller movie? Oh, okay. So I'd say this film is 90% genuinely good. <laughs> um, uh, that's The League of... Fantastic Gentleman uh, from I think it's 2002 it definitely does become a bad film by the end but I 
genuinely love it <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> I do remember seeing that film, I think, when it came out in theaters. Was Sean Connery in that? He was. Unfortunately, he was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually the reason why I went to see it. It was Sean Connery. And I was like, you have to go see it if it's Sean freaking Connery. So, um... <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's so, so funny. I love that. I love that. Bad fantasy thriller movies. That's amazing. So you have to tell us about your history with fan fiction, right? How did you find your first piece of fan fiction? So I don't remember the first fic I read because I think I started writing it before I ever read one. Strangely, I remember my friends being really into it in high school, but I was not for whatever reason. And it was actually when I was talking to a friend about how frustrated I am like oh when I write something no one's ever going to read a you know like a typical 14 year old angst and she told me you know you can just you can write a fan fiction and post it and people will absolutely read that no matter what you write and that I guess blew my mind and I hopped onto fanfiction.net which was still being used more or less at the time and wrote I guess it must have been for some random cartoon that me and my friends were watching at the time and wrote my first fanfic, but I don't remember actually reading something for the first time. But yeah, it was about 2016, I think, when when that happened. Wow! So you wrote and posted something on FFN before you ever read your first piece of fanfiction. That's amazing! Were you nervous posting it up on FFN? I think so, mainly because I didn't understand how it worked. <laughs> like, FNF, it has a notoriously complicated interface, and I don't know how I figured it out without any help, but yeah, I was nervous. I must have been. <laughs> I would be, I think, if I did something like that. And yeah, I, I agree with you that the interface is kind of whacked over there. Uh, they haven't changed the interface since like the early 2000s. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like running on super old technology over there. Now, I'm super curious. What was your first experience like with interaction? I assume that you um, you posted your fan fiction up on FFN. I'm assuming you must have gotten some sort of interaction from the reader base over there at FFN. Was that a good experience? I, I remember not long after starting to post stuff, I started posting on AO3 and FFN simultaneously. And I always remember getting way more comments on AO3. Really? Yeah, like tons more. <laughs> so I figured maybe I should just switch over to AO3. And I think I did after the first year or so. I just sort of abandoned FFN quite quickly. But I I think the comments I did get on FFN were maybe not as mature as I hoped. I don't know if that's the word. I got some strange comments on FFN at the time. Maybe because FFN was beginning to die out a little bit by 2015, 2016. It was becoming a bit weird <laughs> over there. Yeah, you know, this is just anecdotal, but... I have a couple of writer friends who do report to me sometimes about the very strange comments that they still get on FFN from their fan fictions. And sometimes they'll copy and paste the comments into emails for me so I can see them. And I am astounded sometimes at the audacity of some people <laughs> on FFN and the things that they say to the writers. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> some of it is just outrageously like mean, you know? And I'm like, what is going on? And I don't know if it's an age difference thing, the users on FFN versus the users on AO3. I don't know if it's a maturity thing. I have no idea what it is. It's mostly anecdotal, but just, it, it astounds me. It astounds me. Some of the stuff that I see go on on FFN. So it doesn't surprise me at all that you probably got um, comments of better quality, let's say, from yes. AO3. <laughs> Oh my god, that's awesome. Okay, so I have to ask this then as a follow-up. What was it that made you finally read your first piece of fan fiction? Do you remember? I actually, right before starting this interview, I looked up my old, old AO3 history just to see if I could figure out like what was the first fic that I read, or the first fic that I read while logged into AO3. And it's stuff I don't remember reading for like random anime from like 2016 so I think I I, I want to say my heart wasn't in it maybe I was just <laughs> reading stuff that like people had sent me probably through tumblr the sort of stuff that maybe when you're scrolling tumblr in 2015 and you see 
someone has shared a fic, you're like, oh, whatever, I'll read this, even though you don't really care. Well, whatever the culture was in 2015. Oh, right, right. No, yeah, you would know way better than I would. I didn't join Tumblr till 2020, I think. So yeah, I definitely wasn't there in 2015, but I can totally see that. Just seeing some random posts and stuff on Tumblr and clicking on them and then reading the fic and being like, oh, okay, that was kind of cool. That's super cool. So it kind of sounds like, you know, you knew about fan fiction from your friends and you wrote before you ever read. And now you're just kind of in the thick of things here. (laughs) You know, writing amazing fan fiction. I told you before we started recording that um, the series we're talking about today, I was blown away. I was blown away by how well this is written. I have so many things to say about it. So I can't wait till we get to that part. But I wanted to talk a little bit about fan fiction as a concept. I ask everybody this. There are so many different things that we can say about fan fiction as a general concept. And I love asking people this because everybody has a slightly different perspective on it. So I'm wondering for you personally, what makes fan fiction unique and compelling as a concept? So I know in the past two or three years, it's been a really big topic. Like, is fan fiction art? Is it worth analysing as art? Is it worth treating as art? Is this art that is part of canon, could that be considered fanfic? And and, and because of that, is fanfic art? There's like really cyclical arguments that I'm not going to be taking the side on today because my brain has been poisoned by academia, so I don't really feel too qualified to take either side at this point. But I will say that there is value in fanfic. There's value in writing it, and there's definitely value in reading it because the whole point of reading is to enjoy yourself, to to get something from it. And nobody would read fan, fan fiction if it was nothing to come from it, if you weren't getting something from reading it. So obviously it does have value, even if it's not technically, quote-unquote technically art. Because, like, is graffiti art? <laughs> like, some people would consider graffiti art, but would you consider all graffiti art? I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm not solving any <laughs> big questions here. This is just what I think about when people ask this question about fanfiction. And I want to say that fanfic is a kind of expression that is it's born from and encourages community, like fundamentally. It cannot exist separate from community. And I do love that about it. I was not part of the fandom before I started writing Critical Role fanfiction. And now I am because I posted it and because people read it. And people talked to me about the fanfiction that I had written. So there's obviously value there. Yeah, and on a separate note, I love when you're reading a fic, but then you get to like the author's notes and you hear what they had to say about the experience of planning and writing this fic was. And so many people will say like something along the lines of, I had to write this, I had to get this out. And that's so interesting to me because you only sometimes hear from published authors that like they had to get this out. I think like Samuel Beckett said that once or twice, and I'm not saying everybody on AO3 is like Samuel Beckett, but like I, I love this idea of a written art as like an expulsion, something that has to be pulled out of you because it's it's so important. There's so much passion behind it. I do think that is beautiful. Yeah, like this is this is an, a kind of art that cannot exist separate from the internet, and that's like so interesting to me. There aren't that many kinds of art that have been born after the birth of the internet, and fan fiction is one of them. And there's not enough people really looking at the importance of that uh, in relation to, like what I've said about community and passion. Yeah. <laughs> None of these ideas are like really well formed in my head. This is just what passes through my mind when people ask, is fan fiction worthwhile? Is it art? Is, is art fan fiction? Is fan fiction art this? Yeah, it, it all kind of, it's a bit tangled. But yeah, that's that's the long and short of it for me. Oh, no, I love those answers. I love them, especially the point that you brought up about the author's notes and so many authors saying, I had to write this. I had to get this out. Nobody's ever brought that up on the show before, but I have seen that author's note so many times, just like you have. And it's like fan fiction provides this vehicle for this. It's almost like an emotional exorcism or something. You yeah, know? Yeah. Like You just have to get it out. And that is such a human experience. 
as human beings, we have these great big emotions that live inside of our bodies. And it's a healthy thing to get that out, right? And to express that. And uh, fan fiction is just one of those ways, one of those ways that we get to do that. My friend Amato from the Retro Fan Fiction Retrospective podcast, uh, he, he says something about fan fiction that I really love. And uh, he says one of the things that he really loves about fan fiction is the fact that fan fiction gets people writing, people who would otherwise not be writing, mm-hmm. but they mm-hmm. write because of fan fiction, you know? And I just think that that's a beautiful thing, right? Because like, there are so many people who um, have discovered how cathartic this whole writing thing can be. And because fan fiction exists, it's something that everyday people can do. And then there's the community aspect of it too, because then you post it up and you start making friends and you start being part of a community and that can be really healing and helpful too. So it's just this really cool thing. I love that you brought the community aspect of it in too, because um, as human beings, I think that we need as much community as we can get and we can absolutely get that here with the fan fiction community. So I think that's so cool. Now, I want to hear your background with Critical Role. I will admit that I don't know very much about it. My first encounter with Critical Role was when I spoke to Mademoiselle Kurtz. They wrote some stuff for Critical Role. And uh, I know that it has to do with like D&D campaigns and cool stuff like that. But tell me more about your background with Critical Role. How did you get into it? And what are your favorite things about that fandom? Yeah, so I I think I technically started watching Critical Role in 2018. I failed, <laughs> like, I critically failed, because I only got, I think, two episodes in and then decided that it wasn't for me. But I luckily did pick it back up again in 2020 when I had nothing better to do. And I watched, I th- it must have been 200 episodes in a matter of months which is a lot more than it sounds if you don't know about Critical Role, because each episode is like four hours long. So, Oh my god! <laughs> it was a marathon, um, and it helped me a lot, because I really did have nothing else going on in the summer of 2020. I was still at university, but I did feel very unmoored. I didn't have any contact with my friends. I barely had any contact with online friends at the time and being able to just sort of experience this theater of the mind story was it was wild (laughs) I, i i didn't expect how how engrossed i would be in just like a matter of episodes after where I had abandoned it two years earlier. Ah, so this took you by surprise. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that is so, so cool. Do you remember what were some of the things about Critical Role that really drew you in and just hooked you? I think right early in the beginning, what really hooked me was just a couple of the characters. Like just Caleb and Not in particular were my favorites really early on because their dynamic really early in the campaign is so compelling. (laughs) They are surprisingly compelling, despite uh, you, the audience, knowing very little about them in those early episodes. They're amazing characters, and their players are amazing actors. It's unlike any other piece of media, really. Once you actually get started, it's, yeah, like, a lot of people will say this, it is unlike any kind of like mainstream entertainment you go into watch because it feels so organic it being improvised everything about it is improvised and yeah you, you just get drawn into it like really fast now let me ask just for my own clarification critical role is it like a youtube channel is that where it's it primarily found yeah yeah okay. i watched it on youtube okay. when i was catching up i know that they do stream their new episodes on twitch but I didn't know that when I started watching. <laughs> I thought it was just on YouTube. Right, right, right. Well, I, you know, it's easy to to get stuff on YouTube, which is great, you know, which is great, especially for the, the binge watching that you were describing. And yeah, everything. yeah. <laughs> you might not know the, the answer to this, but you mentioned Critical Role being this type of like really innovative media that is just so different, right, from what we normally see in places like YouTube and all that. Do you know, by chance, was, was Critical Role like the first of its kind with this kind of media? Or are they following in the footsteps of others who have done this sort of thing before? Do we know? I am not certain. 
I know that when they started posting their games, they did not think that it was going to become popular in the slightest. You can hear them like muttering in the behind the scenes, like, why are we doing this? No one's going to watch this. <laughs> this is pointless. Um, because they thought it was going to be like a, a one-off, a special, because they were posting on a completely different channel. They were like a a one-off event for the Geek and Sundry YouTube channel, which I remember watching in like 2012 before Critical Role was posted. So they thought they were just going to be like a sideshow. <laughs> but it became so popular that they spun off onto their own YouTube channel. And, you know, now they're partnering with Amazon. <laughs> Very normal things for a group of friends to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. Well, good for them. Good for them. Because, yeah, like, uh, I've never seen it. One of these days I should, right? Especially if I start playing D&D myself. We talked about that before recording. But um, it seems really interesting just in the sense that, like, so many people have really connected to this piece of media and the actors and characters and the story. I've heard that the story um, and the different campaigns that they do are just really compelling and interesting. So I can absolutely see how it's something that you would just get sucked into. And then uh, I can see how it would spawn a lot of fan fiction, because there's a lot. There's a lot for Critical Role. Yep, it's dense. (laughs) I think it's really cool, just in the sense, this is from a total outsider perspective, so I could be absolutely wrong. But there is, to me, it feels like a rather large cast of characters. (laughs) And, uh, And it just seems like one of those pieces of media where you can do a lot with it, because there are so many characters and so many different things going on with these different characters. So it feels like one of those expansive fandoms where you can do a lot with it when it comes to fan fiction. Absolutely, yeah. Like, you've you've dumped an entire crate of Lego in front of me. <laughs> like, I can do so much with this. There's endless possibilities, pretty much. Yeah, I, I don't know too many other fandoms with this many characters. I guess, like, video game fandoms would be comparable when you have so many characters or, like epic novelizations like game of thrones kind of scale of stories it's it's that kind of scale yeah definitely oh good i'm glad i'm not totally crazy when i said that then because i was like every time i read a critical role fan fiction it takes me like a minute and a half (laughs) to kind of get reacquainted with oh yeah there's like a thousand characters not a thousand but i mean like there's a bunch I've always had that impression, like, oh, you can tell so many different stories in so many different variations and combinations because so many characters to talk about. With your series here that we're going to be talking about today, you mostly focused on the, the Shadowgast pairing, which is cool because I have exposure to that because of the fic we talked about with Mademoiselle Kurtz previously. So I do know who Essek is and I know who Caleb is, which is great. <laughs> Um, But for you, what do you love most about these two characters? And then what makes them so compelling to write for for you? So this might be a a disappointing answer, but I just think it's because there is so much potential in these characters. It's like they're, they're built on compounding tropes, the kind of tropes that do get written about a lot, but in a really interesting way. I think that it's potential in like a really literal sense, like they were almost all of these things. They were almost enemies. They were almost enemies to lovers. They were almost star-crossed lovers. They were <laughs> they were almost married. Like it's it's all these almosts that make it really interesting since fan fiction is just a big what if. These characters have so many what ifs to them that as I was watching these episodes live, because I did manage to catch up just in time to catch like the last 20 episodes weekly, my mind was on fire with like all of these possibilities when we didn't know what was going to happen between these two because there was so much tension, like interpersonal tension that was quite unfamiliar to me at the time because I was still quite new to Critical Role and it felt like anything could happen between them. So I immediately started writing all these little what-ifs. Only some of them got posted, but yeah, my really early pieces about these characters was just me trying to figure out what on earth could possibly happen between these two. Oh, nice. So it it sounds like the potential was most compelling for you. Yeah, they're, they're just like writing prompts in character form, really. That's so cool, though. And that's how you know that they did the canon media so well, right? When there is so much potential and so much tension and so many things happening between the lines. 
that space in between where you can just take it and be like, okay, I'm going to take this. I'm going to run with it. I'm going to do whatever I want. With it. <laughs> yeah. The fact that that even exists, the potential exists. That's just so, so cool. I love it. And uh, and it, I think that definitely comes through in, uh, in your fan fiction here because it's so interesting and different. Let's talk about your series. Your series is called Wine Dark Sky. And it was so much fun to read. I had such a good time. This is an AU sci-fi series, which is so stinking cool because Critical Role is more fantasy-based, right? Mm -hmm. Like (laughs) magic and wizards and and things like that, you know, typical D&D stuff. But you decided to take that and kind of flip it around and do a a sci-fi AU series for this, which, oh my God, (laughs) so cool. So, so cool. Real quick, tell us what this series is about and what themes you were exploring here with this series. Yeah, so I can't remember exactly when the idea hit me to write this AU, but it it did feel very natural since I was already very familiar with both fantasy and sci-fi as a genre and their history and I had studied them in school, <laughs> which is maybe less fun, but I had a lot of familiarity with them. And I think most people would understand that sci-fi and fantasy are like cousins genre-wise. They are they do share a lot of history in like the history of literature in in the West at least. And they do blur sometimes. I think definitely even in Critical Role now, there has been science fiction elements being incorporated that makes their story just feel all the more alive. Like this world is evolving, even within its own genres, it's turning into more of like a steampunk Mad Max type setting at this point. Um, It's it's wild. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like the the world that I came up with is quite heavily based on the sci-fi that I love, The, the books that I had been reading in the years running up to me writing this, which would have been like 2021, I think was when I posted the first fic. (laughs) I can't remember. I think it was like early 2021. And yeah, I'd been reading a lot of sci-fi before then. And I'd just fallen in love with the idea of low sci-fi. So sci-fi, which isn't science heavy necessarily, or at least the science that is there isn't um, STEM science. It's, It's science in a more human, sort of soft, squishy sort of science that we probably will move on to talking about when we talk about books, um, the books that I've been reading. But yeah, I wanted a story that is science fiction, but slice of life. It's about like comfort. It's about a wholeness. I really wanted to convey that, like the wholeness um, within these groups of characters. They are, they are like a little family. And even though they are literally <laughs> drifting through a vacuum in space. There's this wholeness within a nothingness. And the nothingness isn't necessarily scary, but it is there. And it does sometimes pose a threat. But these characters are strong and they love each other and I love them. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's it's all very like slice of life for the most part. And that's why I aim to do because that's what I, I was really in love with when I wrote these stories. Nice, nice, nice. Oh, I have so many things to say about that. But before we move on to that, I want to know, because you did mention just there that um, a lot of what you wrote here was inspired by other sci-fi stories, other sci-fi series and things like that. So I was so stinking curious to know, can you tell us which ones you were inspired by? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wrote the first story in spring of 2021 but in 2019 I read my one of my favorite books of all time which is The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers and that first story I posted uh, Having the Compass is pretty much just a spoof of that book Um, the vibes are so similar (laughs) you know they're both about a group of people a found family on a spaceship just sort of living their lives and working very episodical and just heartwarming, (laughs) heartwarming stuff, even though it is very much science fiction, a genre which is not necessarily known for being heartwarming. I think this is one of the genre's biggest, uh, maybe like a weak, I don't know if it's a weakness necessarily, but it's something that I would want to call problematic within the sci-fi canon. It's so 
rarely heartwarming, even though fantasy can be heartwarming. You don't think of science fiction as being like a comfort genre. It's usually pretty harsh. It's associated with dystopia, and often even its utopias are quite miserable. (laughs) And then I read Becky Chambers, and her science fiction is so soothing, and it's I've been reading all of her books at this point, pretty much. Every time she publishes a new book, I grab it and I eat it. I put it in my whole mouth. It's it's becoming a bit of a problem at this point. Like, I, I cannot recommend her books enough, really. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Were there any others that you wanted to mention as far as inspiring or informing? Yeah, so I think there's a little bit of older sci-fi authors at this point in the other entries into the series. I think there's a little bit of like Harry Harrison, a little bit in the, like the sillier sections when the action, the physical action, the um, little moments of kind of goofy adventure, those parts, I think I want to say there's a little bit of stainless steel rat in there. Um, I don't think those books are very good. I, I read them, but I, I didn't even like them that much when I was reading them, but I I do think they're they're funny and there's like a little bit of that vibe in there. There are moments I distinctly remember referencing an Ursula Le Guin novel in one of these stories. Not because these stories are too similar to anything that she wrote, but because I do love her books so much. And science fiction, as we know it today, does owe a lot to her books. There's even, there are references to Le Guin's books in Becky Chambers' books. And yeah, I just wanted to make it like a little nod to where they are. Uh, Lastly, one of these stories is, again, pretty much a spoof of a different sci-fi book. It's a spoof of William Gibson's Burning Chrome, which is a short story that I would recommend to anyone who's interested in uh, cyberpunk. It's very short. It would take you, I think, like 15 minutes to read. Yeah, it's one of those like seminal cyberpunk works because I wanted to write a little cyberpunk space heist story. I love it. I love hearing the different sci-fis that kind of inspired some of these things. And you can absolutely see the connections here and there as you're like reading this story. So I have told you already and I will tell you again <laughs> that my first impression, right, when I open up the series and I start reading it, the writing is utterly gorgeous, right? Just freaking beautiful. Those first few paragraphs in Having the Compass, describing the Win and Deer galaxy, looking like a spilt milkshake, I died. It was like thrilling and just gorgeous, right? I could like see these vivid colors in my brain as I was reading, and it just was absolutely fantastically beautiful. The other thing that I noticed right off the bat is that... <sighs> I have a really hard time putting this into words, like verbally describing this, but there's an ambience in the way that you wrote this. There's like a vibe or a feel to it, right? And it absolutely feels sci-fi. And I don't really know like a better way to put that, but I was getting Isaac Asimov vibes from this whole thing the entire time that I was reading. And I was like, oh my God, yeah. And it just, there's this ambience to it that I have a really hard time describing, but it absolutely feels sci-fi. The first time that we see Caleb's mechanical cat, I just died because it was just so perfect. It was absolutely perfect what you did there. I love the way that you described the um the heartwarming moments, right? That you wanted to insert in something like this because you're right. I'm not as well read with sci-fi as you are, but I have read a lot of sci-fi in my life. And you're right that it tends to be more adventure focused and not so much heartwarming. Those moments are few and far between in uh, most sci-fi that you'll read. But you put so much heart into this story that it's absolutely one of those heartwarming, like found family, slice of life kind of things. It reminded me so much of, um, have you seen Firefly? I've seen, I think I've seen like half of it. I've, I've seen episodes, yeah. Yeah, this first fic in the series, Having the Compass, reminded me so much of the first episode of Firefly. Because it's kind of the same thing where it's this found family, they're very close as a crew, and they have this like old beat up ship that they're constantly having to coax into working. 
and uh, and they just kind of like do their thing and everything. But at the end of the day, they're so close and they're family, just like the crew of this ship here. This crew is so close and they all have their problems and they all come from different backgrounds and they have their own struggles and worries and things like that. But at the end of the day, like they're so close to each other. They would do anything for each other. And there's all of these like beautiful, heartwarming things that are there. So the first fic was absolutely just that really lovely you know, slice of life where you're just kind of being introduced into your universe here. And it was just lovely. I loved it. Yeah, I had so much fun writing that first fic. I remember, I think I wrote it in two days. I think I actually no. said it in my office. Wow. I really just like spat it out. <laughs> it was compulsive how badly I needed to write that. I can't remember what even brought it on, but I, I must have just been struck one day like I need to write this soft, heartwarming sci-fi AU <laughs> because I guess at the time I didn't know if anyone else had written like a proper sci-fi AU for these characters. I now know that there had been a couple, but none which were like the whole cast being on a ship together. So yeah, I, like I had a lot to work with inside my own brain <laughs> and I needed to get it all out at once. So 48 hours later, I had this, was it like, 6,000 words <laughs> that I put out. And yeah, I, I am still proud of it. Um, I haven't reread it in probably six months or so. Um, and I almost want to go back and edit it. But at the same time, I know I was so proud of it at the time. And I didn't even think that I would be writing more when I did post it. I, I thought that really? would just be it. Yeah, because I thought this is like, this is one of the best things I've ever written. It's it's like solid. There's there's like no, nothing dangling here. There's no loose threads. I'll just leave it. I'll move on. I'll write something else. <laughs> and I did eventually realize, ah, oh, no, there's more I can do here. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely more. And you did. You did. Because the next one was the Schwarzschild solution, right? And the other thing that I'll say about this series that I really loved is uh, you spoke about the episodic feel of, uh, you know, the different sci-fis that you've enjoyed. And I was definitely getting that vibe here from this series as well, is that each story sort of felt like almost like an episode or something, you know? Yeah. And it was yeah. just like, oh, that is so, so cool. I love it. And I love Schwarzschild because this is kind of where you focused a little bit more on Essek and, and Caleb specifically, you know, their relationship, their background, you know kind of who they are, um, especially with with uh, with Essek, because um, in the first fic of the series, you come to understand that Essek and Caleb are having this like uh, secret clandestine, <laughs> you know, like relationship. And you're like, OK, that, you know, cool, cool, cool. But uh, the Schwarzschild solution is where you really kind of dig into that and give us the background of how that even happened, which was fascinating to me. I loved that. Loved that he buys Caleb that calculator. But then, like, there's also drama, right, <laughs> in this second fig because Essex's secret comes out. I noticed that the story with Essex's secret reminded me so much of what I saw in Mademoiselle Kurtz's fan fiction as well. I'm wondering, just because I'm not familiar at all with the storyline of, you know, canon critical role, is that canon where Essex, like, <laughs> does something, you know... Bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the deal is, it's like this unspoken ritual at this point that any AU involving these two characters has to like replicate the arc that they take in canon because it's so iconic. You know, in canon, they they meet the strangers. They don't know anything about each other, but they are forced to work together by uh, social politics, mostly, and circumstance. Uh, a lot of things happen, it's complicated, and it'll take ages to explain. But the long and short of it is that Essek is obligated to help the group, even though he secretly has betrayed his own country and is kind of a war criminal, <laughs> kind of. And this like relationship develops against Essek's wishes. He does not want to be involved with them because that puts him in danger. And eventually the group learns that he's a traitor, even though by that point they're like best friends and uh, all sorts of complicated stuff has happened. And they confront him. They're like, oh, you're, you're the traitor. We know now. And he says, like, I am, but I have come to like all of you so much that I wish I wasn't the traitor. And that's like such a compelling... <laughs> 
issue for me. This it's a really strange moment because like don't forget that this is improvised. Uh, Matt, the DM, he fully intended Essek to be an antagonist of some sort. That's why he gave him that backstory. But because the group befriended him while not knowing that he is a bad guy, they made him into this like anti-hero against his own wishes. <laughs> it's really interesting. Feelings got involved and yeah. it just changed the course of the whole story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They 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 domesticated him pretty much. <laughs> Yes, yes. And I love how you treated that here in this story. I had a feeling it had to have something to do with canon just because it was so similar to other things that I've seen in other fan fictions. But (laughs) this probably sounds really silly, but I thought it was almost terribly romantic that Essek was giving Caleb his secret. It's a terrible secret to have. And he feels terrible telling Caleb what he did, you know. There's almost something, like, romantic and vulnerable about that. Like, giving away the thing that is most dangerous to you to another person. For some reason, that just felt so huge and powerful for me. And I don't know why, but um, it was almost romantic. Yeah, that's interesting. That's one of the biggest changes I made from canon. Because in canon, he is revealed as the traitor against his wishes, and the group confronts him about this, but I wanted him to own up to it in this in this case, just because of the vibes as we've talked about. This is this is a very like a comforting story. It's it's not one where I wanted a great deal of conflict, really, because I actually don't love writing conflict in stories. I think it's entirely possible to write a compelling story with minimal conflict and. Yeah, it's a small change, but it does make a big difference uh, between these two because it actually puts more focus on Caleb and Caleb's situation since he is the one sort of narrating the story. It's from his perspective. And it it gives Caleb more to think about when he's the one being confronted rather than Essek in this case. Yeah, which I thought was really beautiful because um, I felt like Caleb handled this so thoughtfully and so gently. Because there's that line in there where he just kind of tells him, I'll be there to meet your better self. He keeps the secret, for the most part. (laughs) He keeps the secret and just sort of waits, right? He waits for Essek to be better. And he just tells him, I'll be there to meet your better self. It's fine. Which I thought was like, oh my God, the feels. The feelings were just, they were all there and they were super great. (laughs) And I just loved it, how everything turned out. I was like on the edge of my seat when Essek was arrested and tried for treason. But Bo, she's so badass, okay? I just have to say that. Your Bo is so badass. And she just figures out how to get him out. And then he becomes part of the crew. Kind of like an exiled fugitive, if you will. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, And it was a really creative way of getting him onto the ship and making him part of the crew. And I just loved how that turned out. Yeah, that's. I think that moment is sort of it's kind of inspired by one of the episodic chapters in a long way to a small angry planet there is a plot point that is somewhat similar to that where one of the one of the crew members is arrested for reasons that i will not spoil in case anyone wants to read that book because it's one of my favorite parts of the book one of the characters is arrested and another member of the crew takes it upon herself to step up and use a really interesting it's political strength but like it's a part of world building as well and I, I love that about that episode where it's it's emotional but it also builds so much of this science fiction world and I did something kind of similar here I, I hope it's not like too similar that it feels a bit too much like plagiarism because I, I wanted it to feel in character and I think it is for Bo because this is a moment of heroism for her in the story Whereas in Angry Planet, the, the character who saves the other character does it like really reluctantly. She's not happy about this. But, <laughs> but Bo is the kind of character, I think, who would see this opportunity and go, yeah, I'm stepping in, I'm solving this problem, even if this isn't my best friend. This is someone who does mean a lot to us and means a lot to my best friend. So she does what she can, and it does work in a in a sort of in a way that I didn't want to explain 
in too much detail because that's how I want to write these sorts of things. They don't need to make perfect sense. They need to make emotional sense, but they don't need to make political or mechanical sense. <laughs> well, and that's why it works so well for your story, because your story is focusing more on the heartfelt, you know, emotional aspects of the story. So it doesn't have to make political sense as much as emotional sense. And you absolutely got the sense. <laughs> I'm saying like the word sense a thousand times. Sorry, guys. But you did get the impression here as she's doing this, that she is doing this for emotional reasons, because you absolutely know that she's doing this because she just loves Caleb. Yeah. She just loves him and she wants him to be happy and he's devastated and she doesn't want that. So she's going to step up and she's going to do whatever she needs to do because at the end of the day, Caleb is her family and she's going to do whatever needs to be done. It was just, ugh, ugh. Like, <laughs> when I was done reading, I was like, oh my God, that's so beautiful. That's so great. I loved it. It was so, so good. It's kind of funny because you lead off with that intense, like emotional spot, right, from that fic, and then you jump right into the next one. The house has shut its many eyes, which is like <laughs> this really interesting. I feel like I, I felt like there were some horror elements in this a little bit. Yeah. And maybe I'm just saying that because like it was horrifying to me personally. But this is your like cyberpunk heist fic. It reminded me so much of an Ocean's Eleven movie or a Leverage episode or something because like the heist is there and it's just so cool. But you made it so emotional. Okay, this is the only fic I think where you mentioned Molly, right? Yes. So first of all, something I need to explain is that I am allergic to writing the same thing twice, which is why everything that follows the next thing I've written is like completely unrelated. <laughs> Everything is, yeah, I I'll want to write something completely different from whatever I just finished. So, and also I made a rule for myself. Everything in this particular series has to stand on its own. Kind of like a challenge to myself. So everything is different. Everything stands by itself. The rule, a single chapter. So they're like short story exercises for me, basically. <laughs> and this one in particular, I do sometimes wonder if it was the right choice, because it's so different in tone from the others, and is definitely a huge leap from the one right before it. And I think it's maybe the, the one that's the least read, because it is so out there. <laughs> I don't know, anyone expected me to immediately jump into spoofing burning chrome of all things. Um, but I had a lot of fun writing it, because it has a wild structure. I wanted it to just be baffling, <laughs> really, because that's the experience of reading Burning Chrome. There's like time jumps, there's perspective jumps all over the place. But I, I wanted to work at making it understandable and also exciting. So not confusing. <laughs> I did not want it to be confusing. Yeah, I didn't think it was at all. It was exciting. It was exciting. But then at the same time, you still put so much heart into it. Like, this is the only fic where you mentioned Molly. I don't know Molly. I have no idea who that character is, right? But you gave us enough information that I was devastated for Molly. I was absolutely gutted and devastated. And it gave me emotional investment in what followed after Molly's story, right? Because I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they have to pull this off. They have to do it. They have to, have to, have to. And so you you put them on this like quest, you know? <laughs> and it reminded me of so many things. Like um, I was getting Inception vibes the whole time. Yeah. I was yeah. reading this, um, especially with the way that the story like starts out. I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds so much like Inception. And you have them go through this whole operation that they plan. And it's one of those things where they have to get it just right or... They're all dead, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I had so much fun building stakes in what's really a very short story. I, I wanted there to be as high stakes as possible, because without those stakes, it would be just a really strange story. And wh why would they be putting themselves in so much danger if the stakes were not so high, if they needed to do this so badly? And to explain to you who has not actually watched Critical Role, this is... A retelling of like the last arc and a half of the first camp, the second campaign. Sorry, because at the end of that campaign, they do go to extreme lengths and put themselves in extreme danger to rescue this character Molly. And even though 
they definitely don't do it like they do in the story. It's it feels the same. It's it's terrifying. Those last few episodes of the campaign are terrifying, and it does bring in this new element of horror that the campaign hadn't really been using and up until oh, that point. Wow. Yeah, it suddenly turns into this like extreme psychological and body horror story. There's a lot of really wild imagery that. Matt, the DM, suddenly pulls out of nowhere, <laughs> and it does take the players and the the audience off guard at first. And yeah, I've like I've mixed feelings about the end of the campaign, but I do love how how high the stakes are. It felt really <laughs> really amazing to, to to watch those episodes weekly because we had no idea what was going to happen, and it was terrifying. And I I wanted to recreate that in my weird little sci-fi world in the best of ways I could, um, even though it's so different from the first two stories. And I thought, you know what? Burning Crow might just be the way to do it. <laughs> oh, that was a brilliant choice, though. It really was, because you're right. The way that you did this, the stakes were so high. And even me, without any background in you know the campaigns or, or any of the canon stuff, like I got it. I, I understood why this was so important. And I was at the edge of my seat going, oh, my God, are they going to will they won't they are they going to die? Is someone going to die like this is so dangerous, <laughs> you know, and it's thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling. And then when Bo ends up all alone at the very end and you have no idea if she's going to make it out, I was like, oh, my God. Um, and then she does. And it's great. But I wanted to ask you about that. Now, one scene kind of at the very end. Well, sort of at the very end where the, the gravity cuts in the ballroom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I either read a author's note from you or a comment from you or something where you were talking about how you had kind of had that scene in your head for a little bit. And you were just really excited about that one scene. I was wondering if you could talk about that for just a second. Yeah, I think. My memory's gone a little bit because that was definitely fresher in my mind when I wrote it. But I think when I was, way before I was writing the story, I had that scene in my head and I knew it was going to be in this world, in this AU, because where else would the gravity just turn off randomly? So I thought, yeah, at some point, these two characters are going to be in zero G in a ballroom. That needs to happen at some point. And the next logical step for me was, this happens because they're doing a heist, obviously. Obviously, they're doing a heist, and the gravity had to be turned off for a step in the heist to work. And then I must have like hit a brick wall because nothing else evolved until I made that breakthrough and thought, ah, this is going to be a cyberpunk, weird, surreal brain heist. <laughs> that's, what, that's what this is. Just but for a while, it really was just this isolated free floating pun unintended idea i needed these characters to be floating in a ballroom and yeah i almost wrote just a straight up ocean's 11 heist with no um cyberpunk elements and they were just going to be stealing i don't know like like a data trip or something <laughs> something no, nowhere near as exciting which is why i didn't write that version <laughs> <laughs> No, it was just, it was so great because it was like this moment of levity. You know, you have like all of this intense high stakes like stuff going on with the heist. And then you have this like brief moment of levity in here. When you describe that one person who's floating around and they end up puking their guts out, you know, and then they're frantically trying to like, you know, float away from their pile of puke. And the, it was just like, I laughed out loud at that. Like, I know that's horrible and terrible, but it just... <laughs> The imagery was just so great. You know, and then, of course, the last the last fic here is called 60 Seconds. And we can briefly talk about this one, too. This one is actually focusing more on, like, um, on Yasha here. Yasha yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and Bo is in here, too. And I just have to say, the sweet interactions between Bo and Yasha, like, were so sweet and precious. I get this sense, and I don't know Bo that well, but she's kind of badass. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> Pretty confident, just way badass. Like, she's just really, really cool. But then she turns into this, like, bumbling idiot sometimes when it comes to <laughs> Yasha. And it was just so cute and so precious. And I was just, like, thrilled at how embarrassed she was to be caught caring about things that Yasha cares about. You know, like, remembering her favorite flowers and researching them and all that. I just thought was so sweet and sentimental. Which I think actually made the perfect backdrop 
for what happens here, right? Because then Yasha has to watch her whole crew, including Bo, die. Like how many times? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's super romantic. <laughs> yeah, but you establish that emotional connection for us to where like every time she has to watch her family die, it is the most devastating thing because it happens differently every time that she goes back. You know, mm-hmm. she sees yeah. a different aspect of what happened and it is gutting. So I just thought this was such a cool concept. Of course, it reminds me of a lot of things because we have a lot of movies and and different sci-fi related things that have this concept of the time loop where they, you know, someone keeps going back in time. So it reminded me a lot of that like scene from Doctor Strange where he's getting killed over and over in that time loop. (laughs) Or, you know, there's Groundhog Day. There's lots of different pieces of media that are like this. But oh my gosh, it was just so interesting to watch her piece together the mystery because at the heart of it is this mystery. They have no idea why the ship is exploding. And uh, she decides she's going to be the one to figure it out. And she does. It was just so, so cool. Yeah, this is kind of like the house. It it was also a big challenge for me to write this story with a really bizarre structure because I was writing the same scene over and over and over again, but from a different angle. And it, it was daunting. I think I remember pausing so many times in the process of writing this and putting on hold for days and days, or like a week or two at a time, because I I didn't know how I was going to make it really like piece together in the end, because even I didn't know how Yasha was going to solve this problem, really. Because it, it needs to be believable. How would this character, who doesn't really have like great mechanical knowledge, she, she is not an engineer, she's basically the bodyguard, she's the muscle of this group. She doesn't know how a ship works, she doesn't know why the ship would be exploding. How would I teach her how to fix this problem by effectively killing her over and over again. It's a strange exercise to give myself, but I did have fun with it. By the end of it, it was so satisfying to piece it all together. It felt like I was solving this problem with her, like I was solving this jigsaw puzzle backwards, (laughs) basically. I was solving a jigsaw puzzle that didn't have a picture on it, just blank spaces, and I was trying to just figure it out as I went, and it it did fit together in a way that I am very proud of, even though I know it's it's far from my most read fic. I am still very proud of this one. Oh, and I'm so glad that you are, because you should be. It was thrilling to figure it out with her. I agree. Like, I'm sure it was, like, really cool writing it and figuring out how it was going to end. But reading it, it was absolutely, like, wonderful. (laughs) And it's funny that I use the word wonderful, because what you're really watching is somebody die over and over and over and (laughs) over again. And I imagine that that wasn't uh, a fun thing for Yasha to go through. I imagine it was painful. I imagine it was so, like, scary terrifying really right to go through that over and over and over and over again the strength that it takes to go through that over and over and over and over again and to make that same decision every time that nope I'm not going to give up I'm not going to let go Uh, we're going to do this again and she just keeps going back over and over and over again it was beautiful absolutely beautiful and she does figure it out in the end thank god Ugh, and saves the ship and it's all good I'm going to combine the next couple of questions here. So like, (laughs) it's okay if you kind of forget where I'm kind of going here. But I was wondering if you remember which parts of the series were the most fun to write and which were the most challenging. And then I was also wondering what scene did you look forward to writing the most when you were going through this? So I think I'll start with what was the hardest because I was just going to mention that actually those disaster scenes from 60 Seconds were difficult to write just because I was writing pretty much the same event something like six or seven times. (laughs) I can't remember exactly how many times it happens, but the ship explodes a lot and it's exploding in pretty much the same way every single time. And I had to make that interesting and terrifying the same way over and over again without it feeling boring. It has to be terrifying every single time. And I did not look forward to having to do that when I was planning this uh, story out because I did start by like bullet pointing every single um, time loop. Every loop had its own little series of bullet points because I didn't want to get myself confused because I was writing the same thing over and over again. I was caught in my own time loop, basically. So that was a bit difficult because there are some similarities between those sequences, 
because, I mean, uh, without getting too explicit, there are dead bodies, and the dead bodies would be identical each time because they're dying in the same way. But I did want it to be horrifying each time, not just the first time. Right. (laughs) The scenes I was looking forward to, I think, was the end of the sports child solution. That's what I what I what I think of as the sky dance when Caleb and Essek just go on that um, spacewalk together. I was really looking forward to writing that just because I, I thought it was just a really pretty scene. <laughs> and I look forward to writing it after all of the the stress of that the, these two characters have gone through in that story. In the same way, I really looked forward to writing the the zero G dance between Jester and Ford in um, the house. I really look forward to that one, obviously, because it was the scene that I had in my head for the longest. And yet, yeah, if we didn't mention it, but the the climax, what I think of as the climax of the house, the heist story, which is when Bo is saved by a an illegal download of Jester's mother. It's a really strange sequence that I, I remember thinking, this is going to be what saves our character in the darkest moment of a story, and it's going to be ridiculous. And I really look forward to writing that because it is really stupid. But I thought, how else am I going to balance the terror of what's actually happening in the story without a 60 foot tall hologram of a burlesque dancer? It was hilarious though, because that scene is so emotionally charged because it is so scary. But then you have, you do have that hologram and it's huge. Like the scale of it is so huge. And there was just something humorous about it. When I was reading it, I was like, this is so scary, but this is also so hilarious that this is what saves her in the end because it's just distracting enough, you know, that she can get out. And I loved that line that you put in there. I can't remember exactly how it goes. I think it's something like she was never so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It was just it was so great. So I imagine that that was super, super fun to write. I love that. Yeah, that that was another scene that I think had been in my head while I was brainstorming that story. Because even though I didn't know exactly what all of the um, the problems you know, in any high story, there's going to be hitches. That's what the the joy of watching a heist movie is them coming up against unexpected hitches and then having to improvise around them. <laughs> because half the joy of a heist story is the planning and then the other half is sheer panic and improvisation. <laughs> so I needed to come up with problems that would come out of nowhere and the stupid ways they would get around them. And obviously one of them is turning off the gravity in the ballroom and the other one is a giant hologram of just as mother singing some burlesque song. (laughs) (laughs) No, they were so perfect. They were absolutely perfect and such a joy. They were such a joy to read. And so I can see how those would be just fun, fun scenes to write and, and think about and create in your head and then put on paper. They were just wonderful. I'm wondering about your writing process just a little bit but mostly like the beginning of your writing process. I've always wondered this. I've never asked a writer this before, but when you're planning to write a new fic, what's the very first thing that you do when you decide, I'm going to write a new fic? How does that all start for you? What's the first thing that you do? I think the first thing I do is absolutely nothing (laughs) because I find that if I come up with what I think is a good idea, the worst thing I can do is start writing because I'll immediately lose interest because I'll think that it's half-boiled. It's it's not fully formed yet. I could do more of this and I'll just get yeah bored with it really fast. <laughs> there are so many ideas that I've put down and I've written maybe 500 words and then decided this isn't working. But the ideas that do work, I've found, are the ones that I let sit in my head for ages, like days, days, weeks sometimes, before I sit down and I open the doc and I'll put down bullet points. And then eventually, after I think I have enough of an idea here, I've sort of I've moved things around, I've reshaped stuff. And then I'll write a short scene, like a really short scene from the first chapter, what I think would be the first chapter. And if I'm still feeling the same way that I did when I first had that idea, 
that's when I actually really start writing it. Oh, that's fascinating. I've always been so curious how people approach these stories. So I don't post fan fiction myself. I write secret little projects that I keep, you know, hidden away in Google Docs. But my approach has always just been sit down at the computer, open my Google Doc and just start writing. And while that's very fun for me because I do like writing, I find that I never finish anything, you know, and my stories don't really go anywhere. It's just like this weird stream of consciousness. And I've always wondered, like, hmm, I wonder if I should be taking a different approach with all of these things. So that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Thank you so much for that. I've always been curious about how different writers do that. We are at the end here of the show. Do you have any other fan fiction writers that you'd like to shout out on the podcast real quick? So I don't read a ton, actually. Uh, not these days. But I will recommend Kurtz, who we did mention earlier. They've been a great friend for me since I joined this fandom. And they've beta-read a ton of my fics. You probably noticed their name pop up a lot in my office notes. They've been an enabler, but yeah, a great friend. So go read their fics. Um, I'll also recommend a fic from an author who I've never spoken to called The Wise Man's Tree by an AO3 account called Curry Bell. That's C-U-R-R-I-E-B-E-L-L-E. That is a really unique story. It's it's like a gothic horror, sort of. I'm a huge fan of like Victorian gothic horrors, so this really scratched a niche in my brain. It's very like Frankenstein, Dracula sort of thing. <laughs> it's really great. It's Critical Role. It's about characters from the first campaign, so even more characters for you to learn about. Yes, that's brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll make sure that the uh, links end up on the show notes so folks can check that out if they so wish. That's awesome. Doll and Dapple, thank you so, so much for joining us today and talking about your series with us. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Check out her stories on AO3 and give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick podcast at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. Rolling.